0: Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have Fred Kermish, who is a sales trainer for private bankers in Geneva, no less. Fred, welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Marcus.
0: Dave Curlin recently did a, released a piece of research that said that the Swiss are the best salespeople in the world. Can you defend that position? <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I
1: think I think it would depend how you mean what you mean by sales, but in terms of effectiveness, they tend to be incredibly effective. There's a long tradition of hospitality in Switzerland, going back to the 19th century, when the the English were going through Switzerland on their European tour. Shelley and Byron stopped off in Geneva. For instance, that's where where Frankenstein was written. And when you're used to hosting people, you tend to be quite good at learning to to listen to them, understand their needs, cater to the needs, and fundamentally what uh, what, being a salesperson is about. So they tend to be very effective, not in the Anglo-Saxon way, but in terms of results, the Swiss tend to be very good.
0: In, In all honesty the results speak for themselves, as long as it's ethical and you're listening to what the customer wants and giving them that, then presumably that's a win, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a lot about actually understanding what the customer wants, uncovering the needs. Quite often, customers don't know what they want, hence the, the, the conversation, which uh, to me is part of what sales really is. And as long as the outcome is right for everyone, then that's what we should be getting to. So
0: let's start with that. What do you teach your clients about listening?
1: I teach them that, first of all, they probably usually don't listen enough. They have too many assumptions that are often inaccurate. And I find the assumptions often show up because these are just long-held beliefs in the industry that they don't think of challenging. So typically, if I ask a banker what his client wants, he says they want performance and they want price. Mm. And whilst... This is not untrue. I challenge the assumption that all they care about is price, because pretty much all prices right. are roughly the same, and that all they really care about is, is performance. And I say that they understand that performance is determined by market performance. So if they are below a certain level, they have to explain why. But then also they create a portfolio which should behave according to certain expectations and given what the market is doing. So as long as the portfolio behaves according to expectations, then the client has got no reason to to complain or they're complaining about the market. But there are many other things that the client does care about. And what we see is because it's not easy to measure those, people assume they don't exist. And as soon as we have a tool to actually measure it and have the client say what he or she wants and measure it and weight it. That's a wonderful conversation, which is a great way in the a great foot in the door for my my clients, for the bankers. And then the client actually will have a tendency of saying, "Well, if you deliver X, Y, Z, and I believe you, then I've got no reason not to become your client." And that's one of the wonderful ways to raise assets quickly. That's a great way to have a conversation, just saying, "I'd like to understand what you really want."
0: Again, this is so critical. You, you see, so many organisations and their salespeople fixated on their own misguided assumption as to what the customer wants. If you agree up front what matters to them, it could be things like how well you communicate, how timely and responsive you are. Because so often, salespeople have come with a bunch of assumptions. And the price myth is absolutely commonplace across every industry I've worked in. I've worked across 500 different segments of the market. And I've yet to come across one that doesn't say, oh, you know, it's all about price. And it's almost never about price. In a real selling situation, price is a factor. Yes, it's important. It's uh, nice to have. People will pay premium if they trust that you have their best interests at heart, if you look after them, uh, if you've been there in the tough times and you stood by them, and One of the things that flabbergasts me is how often I see managers who are desperate to hit their team number, forcing salespeople to go back with a ludicrous offer. I had one client a couple of weeks back whose boss told him to go and offer an 80% discount. And the client went and said, no, the timing's wrong for us. Now they're coming back and they are ready to buy, but now they want the 80% discount. It strikes me as idiocy. Why is it that so many people in management don't understand human beings?
1: Well, I think they haven't been trained, first of all, or few of them have actually been trained to management. You know, if somebody asks you to to pilot an airplane, you'll probably say yes, provided you get training. If somebody asks you to operate in somebody's brain, you'll probably say yes, provided you get training. But many, many managers just get promoted because they were good at what they were doing. They're not given any training, and actually they're managing the lives of of multiple people and families and we assume that people can sort of wing it when we wouldn't accept that with with being an airplane pilot or being a brain surgeon with management and people skills it's sort of supposed to be something that that we can just figure out that reminds me of um you might remember black adder black adder the third one of the episodes where what's his name? Johnson comes with uh, the the dictionary and explains to the prince that it's about saying what words mean. And the prince says, well, I know what words mean. I speak English. You must be a bit of a thicko. And (laughs) we assume people figure things out. And if reality shows that they do, then great. But then when reality shows that they don't, that's something different. And I think also part of it is just a lack of other options. We can stick to numbers. We can stick to price. There's a model that we use that is inaccurate, but it's difficult to create a more accurate model. So if we don't know how to do it, then why do it? Let's just do what, whatever we're doing, even though it doesn't work.
0: The evidence is there, but the results aren't. Mark Schaefer said that to me a couple of weeks ago. We recently did a survey on management and leadership, and 43% of companies claimed they had a good management training program. Yet only 13% of sales teams worldwide hit their quota. And it turns out, by the looks of things, only 6% of managers are qualified for the role. And this is quite frightening, Uh, allegedly as a profession. No department would run, be allowed to run this badly, where you have 60 to 80% of your people missing their objectives. that's somehow considered you know, part of doing business. One of the other things that I see is this confirmation bias coming in, where salespeople go, uh, enter a sale with a bunch of assumptions, and then they listen for the evidence to prove their assumption. And net result of that is that they still end up driving the ship off course. So what are you teaching your clients at a management level in order to ensure that their salespeople are actually listening for what's being said, not what they're assuming is being said.
1: I usually argue that the model that's being used, I basically talk about the results, and I'll say the results seem to be proving that something isn't working. If you're having trouble with one or a few of your bankers who are not delivering the results, are you close to trying something a bit different and just seeing, and then we'll test if it works? And I explain, I, I use basics of uh, systemic psychology to so say it's a scientific method. We'll try something, we'll change one variable, and then we assess, and we try to understand it. I also offer psychological models that make sense, that are more comprehensive. And when, you know, when we hear something that actually sounds true with the right arguments, it, we, we're willing to accept it. And most people I talk with, managers or bankers, are not unwilling to use models that work. Simply they haven't found it. They don't know where to look. They're not readily available. And not many people seem to be, seem to be using it. And once we see it, 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 it's much, much easier. And then, you know, when we challenge assumptions and we show how to do it in a way that is not threatening for the client and just asking a few questions and showing people how to ask the questions, it's much easier. So it's a, it's a combination of understanding the psychology than the technique of how to lead the conversation and how to ask the question and often the bankers will will try with one or two questions see it works and start getting addicted to it and that's a that's a great feeling when they when they come actually it happens to me with clients where they say they come back they got great results with their own clients and they say you know what I've had a great conversation with my with my spouse better than I've had in years and uh, I'm actually feeling much happier as a result all, all around because uh, I had many assumptions that turned out to be wrong and now I know how to ask about it and not fear the, not fear the challenge.
0: So that's interesting. What, what are the four most common questions you get asked by your prospects about how they can go about improving their sales?
1: I've got, so I've got two types of prospects. Most of them will be the, the heads of teams, desk, Managers, heads of desks, or the CEOs of the the companies, and the other ones are the bankers themselves. So uh, it's interesting having both of them slightly, slightly different approach here. But one of the the questions I get asked most by the managers is, why is it like? Can you explain to me why this banker or that banker or the team are not managing more assets for the clients? I so say we don't understand their compensation is directly related to how much money they they manage. We know that our bank is good enough because other bankers manage a lot of assets. We know these people have got clients because they managed X hundred million before, and they've got some accounts here, but we don't understand why they're not performing better. So we've tried, and, and also if they don't perform, we're going to fire them. So presumably they don't want to be fired. Mm-hmm. So we they've got they've got the motivation, the incentive, they've got the uh, the punishment, so the reward and punishment and it's not working. Why is it? So I explained to them why it is. It's simply that they don't know how to do it. It's like shouting at a drowning man that he should start swimming. Possibly mm-hmm. is not a very effective solution. <laughs> and if it works, great, but usually it just <laughs> It's not really helping, and I take the metaphor and say, you know, if if the drowning man has got has got a briefcase full of cash and he drowns with it, that's not really helpful to you. So, yeah. one of the things might be that the, the bank actually doesn't have doesn't have the client book that he that he says he does. But another thing is that maybe the bank isn't relevant to his clients, or maybe he doesn't know how to how to ask for it. So part of it is assertiveness training but especially learning to learning to, to listen and ask the right questions. That's one of the questions why don't they manage more 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 assets why do they lack motivation it's not motivation they just don't know how
0: on that note your five biggest competitors are fear apathy ignorance denial and ego fear no, that's a good one that's often down to a misunderstanding and a poor self concept Um, or they're feeling pressure, which Mm -hmm. is distracting them. Apathy, that's a motivational issue. And if they can't be asked, then why are you bothering? You need to find their motivation. So that's probably a problem that started in the recruitment process and should have been picked up then, should have been picked up in the pre-onboarding and the onboarding. And if at that point you found that they were still apathetic, then you should have got rid of uh, earlier. Ignorance is actually the easiest and most forgivable of the five because ignorance means that they just don't know if you train them how and you tap into that person's motivation. Miraculously, their performance will improve uh, if they do the behavior. Then denial is often tied to ego uh, because they would rather not admit that it's them Or they would rather not admit that they are doing something wrong. And uh, as a result, their ego, and this is the biggest obstacle of all, where someone's ego gets in the way. Because what that tends to do is drag them into the drama triangle, where they feel like a victim, or they rescue. And then they blame the market, the economy, the company, their management, their pricing, and everything else, or the customer, when in fact, it's them. If something isn't working, look in the mirror. So, right, um, your second common question.
1: I just want to say about those uh, those five points, that's that's really Great. relevant. With apathy, it's interesting. One of the issues some of my clients have is they work for big bank where the clients are given to them and they never learned how to hunt. That's the differentiation between hunters and, and farmers. And learning how to hunt can be incredibly different, difficult because of ignorance and fear and all, and all of the rest. So I, I noted that down.
0: Mark Weinberg often describes um, people who are in a farming position as zookeepers, because all they do is just feed the animals. If they can keep them alive long enough, they'll get paid a commission check. If they don't know how to prospect, especially in tough times, because in good times, business kind of footwalks fl- through the door anyway. But it's now when we're moving into a downturn, massive downturn, that people will be tested and they'll be found wanting. And this is where you need to invest your time, your energy, your resources in helping people to prospect within their existing accounts in particular and within those uh, ecosystems. So if you're selling to high net worth individuals, look at their network. If you're selling business to business, look at their supply chain, look at the customer's customer, look at alumni, as well as the obvious stuff of organic growth and the ecosystem of subsidiary companies, parent companies, sister companies?
1: Well, another question I get is, can I coach this person or that person? Or what do I do with this person? And the answer there is, well, first of all, I need to see if the person has actually has a potential. So it has a potential book of clients that is existing, that is available. And then if they do, then we can create specific scenarios and we can weigh them by credibility. And if they don't, then we have a bit of an issue. And I've I've seen bankers, fortunately I didn't have to work with, but I've seen bankers who bluff their way through their career. They don't actually have the book of clients. They don't actually have access to the capital that they that they claim, but then they'll hop banks every few years um, and bluff their way into the next one. So, so that, you, that usually is an issue. Now, if they do have the book of clients, then it's about seeing if the clients have enough potential, that's assessing it, and then how do they talk about it and just check and validate it. But I'm actually I'm amazed at how many bankers get hired by a smaller bank and they don't really have a plan as to how to raise assets. And they've deceived themselves into believing that they can bring all of this money with them, but they've underestimated just how strong their loyalty to the previous bank is or the... Uh, the importance of the brand of the previous bankers.
0: Well, and this reminds me of one of my favorite jokes, which is what do you call a conversation between two uh, grown adults where both sides are lying through their teeth? A job interview. I (laughs) I think very often salespeople come in and they bluff their way in, but the managers are also doing the same in terms of claiming what they're capable of bringing to the party as well. And so when both of them have fibbed, then you get this uh, meeting of disasters, then they make wrong hires. And you know a wrong hire is the single highest hidden cost in your business. So if you have not taken into account your poor recruitment record, then you stand to lose a lot of money. It won't appear, obviously, on the balance sheet. But Phil McGowan did some research using 5,000 studies, and he did a meta-study of them. And uh, the conclusion is that it takes 38 months for the company to recover the position after you lose a salesperson. So in enterprise sales, it costs you 35 to 125 times salary if you make a wrong hire. Pay attention at the recruitment stage, and if that's not working, get that right.
1: That's very true. And what you say about the lying is... Is is true? On the one hand, the the bank often the employer does lie, but also the interviewing managers want to be lied to. They want to hear specific things. I I sometimes talk about interviews, and they will say, "Well, you know, the the conversation goes something like this." I ask them, "How do you choose the people you hire?" They say, "We take the most convincing people who are the most impressive." Or, "Did you ever get it wrong?" Yes. So, what about somebody who's less impressive but actually can deliver? And they go, "Well, you know." We'd rather have somebody who promises to bring in 300 million than somebody who's hesitant about 80 million because we don't know if 80 million is, you know, it's not very much. We'd rather have 300 million. Go, But you're weighting it as though there's equal credibility. I'd rather have, if I were running a bank, I'd rather have everybody managing 80 million, which is a rather lower amount for a private bank in Switzerland. But knowing that they have it, rather than taking risk on 300 million where it could be 300, but it's more likely to be close to zero, So inviting people for deception is a problem, both in hiring and then in management. And I sometimes actually end up working with with the bankers where they need to manage their employer's expectation, but the employer wants them to lie to them, wants to be told absolute fibs because they want to have these projections and have an excuse to believe in them. And that's difficult to manage.
0: I see a lot of the big swinging dicks uh, culture within banking. (laughs) And what what they're looking for are these really heavy hitters. And pretty much everybody else is left to swing, which seems crazy because there's a a, a lot of potential within those individuals, but they don't spend any time coaching their heavy hitters because what they want to do is leave them alone. And then they spend their time berating and terrifying the people who are not performing, and they're not driving the best out of them. And Managers only have four functions in my book in sales. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, and make sure that you're helping them clear the roadblocks and protect them from above. If you do those four things well, miraculously, your team hits quota. If you don't do any of those four things well, then chances are you're going to be in trouble. And the single biggest one is you hire the wrong people. So pay heed to what Fred has just told you. Excellent. What's the third most common question?
1: That's what I get from, from bankers who, who hire me directly. And they go, how do I save my job? I'm not hitting quotas. I'm not, I've changed banks. I'm not able to raise enough assets. I know I've got the clients. The clients aren't following me. If I don't manage soon, I'm going to lose my job. What do I do? How do I save it? Can I save it? And that is, you know, that's case by case. Sometimes no, often, very often, yes. And I mean, like we, like we know, it's they're often terrified at having a conversation where the client will say no to them. And of course, the secret is feeling comfortable with the client saying yes, asking for the yes, finding all of the the reasons why the client doesn't want to come, and then just talking about them with uh, with the client but that also requires stepping away from the price and performance mindset. So it can be very uncomfortable when they're used to that. And also removes their excuse of saying, well, the client isn't coming because performance is bad and the prices are high. So it's your fault. If it is your fault, then you can't blame me. As I point out to them, you know, you can say that, you're still going to lose your job. So how is that really going to help you? You know, you'll feel like it's unfair. Is that a narrative that you really want to, to maintain at the price of your job.
0: And that's back to my point about the ego and then then dragging themselves into the victim or the persecutor position of that drama triangle. You touched on planning in the last point. Why is it that so few salespeople are really very good at planning? Because the best salespeople I know are methodical and systematic and they're ruthless in their disqualification because they have a plan, they know what good looks like, they know when to walk away, and they know what, which opportunities to pursue. But it strikes me that very few salespeople, and I'm sure it's no different in private banking, are any uh, good at this.
1: I think it's because they are terrified that reality might show them that they don't have the potential and that they actually have to, to change something. And planning is the antidote to hope. Once you've planned, you don't need to hope. You have a plan. You can talk about it. You can assess things and you can, you know, see what reality looks like. But I see I see a huge hope addiction in banking. And it's one of the, you know, it's partly understandable where if a banker doesn't understand why someone is his client. He can hope it's because he's amazing and he produces all of, the, all of the alpha, like he's a superstar. Whereas if he has a multivariate analysis, a multifactor analysis, and starts seeing that it's a combination of different things, then he'll have a much more granular understanding, but that affects the ego. That's a big part. And then also, I see many people who have not learned to, have, to create multifactor analysis or to weight things. I see it all the time. People saying saying the many factors, but they don't weight the different factors. It's not easy to do. Once we learn to do it, it gets quite addictive. But until we've learned to do it, we we often look for unicausal analysis, such as the client didn't come because performance wasn't good enough. Performance possibly played a role, but I doubt it's exactly 100% of the decision-making process. And that's not usually how sales work. So yeah, that's my that's my, my my take on it. Not actually having a model with which to understand it. Can you
0: define what you mean by multi-factor analysis as well? Because that's probably mm. a new term for many people.
1: Sure. So taking the case of people choosing a bank, so if you're a high net worth individual, you weigh your I'll just do it with banking, but I could do it with cars or computers or anything. So you weigh the different considerations. One of them is price. Another one is performance. Another one is service, availability, transparency, access to the manager or access to the uh, the CEO, reputation, brand, and it can be a whole bunch of other other elements. Or if somebody buys a car, they don't only look at the, the motor, the price, the gas consumption, the color of the car, the reputation, the brand, the leather, the all of those things, the feeling. They weigh all of this somehow using some kind of formula and they can probably write it out. It wouldn't be very precise, but it'd be the feel of driving. It weighs X percent roughly and it gives a, a much more accurate model. It just takes a bit more time. It's something actually I actually came up with because I used to read when I was a teenager, I used to read video game magazines. And in the video game magazines, which are not massively elaborate or unbelievably intellectual, they would say, this game will rate the graphics, will rate the the music, will rate the playability and the fun, and give an overall rating. And they'd explain the overall rating is not the average of all of the other ratings, is we've weighed it as being overall fun. And we don't know exactly how we do it, but this is our rating, so that's that. So if they can do it in video game magazines, I'm assuming that it can be used in other industries. When we use it, it works really well, and is a great basis for conversation with clients.
0: And we need to remember people buy for their reasons, not your reasons. Too often, the salesperson goes in with the assumption that because they've got some whiz-bang carbunculator and it's got their, all these features, that these will be the reasons why the prospect will buy. It's, it's never the reason that they bring you. And it's almost never what you assume. And you, you refer to the hopium. I think what we also uh, see is that salespeople get paralyzed because they get stuck in a rut. And my favorite definition of a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked out. And what they're not doing is looking over the sides to see how they can get out of it. So they keep doing the same thing. And very often what they'll do as well is they'll look at what the more successful people do, and they'll make assumptions about what they're actually doing. Or the boss will say, just look at how I do it. And they're not the boss, so they can't carry it off. And this, again, is a major problem that I see in sales, that managers don't coach. What they do is they tell. They turn coaching into a telling session, and they do ride-along sessions, and they take over. The purpose of a ride-along where you're going along with the salesperson is to coach them to get better. And that means you ask them questions, you have them analyze what's gone on and what worked and what didn't work. What do we do more of? What do we do less of? What do we stop doing? What do we start doing? And you let them fail, but you don't let the business fail. And too often it's there's a, a huge pressure to get the result now. Whereas in fact, if you invested the time in coaching, in training, in ride-alongs, and you got out of your ivory tower, then chances are you'd observe what was going on. You'd see patterns of behavior. Then you could see things that you could suggest through your questioning that they could look at and do differently and help them come to that conclusion. So Fred, what's your fourth most common question?
1: The fourth one is, uh, where do I start? Okay. I want to do it. What's the first thing I do? And that's, you know, usually it comes across when people are have ignorance of where to start and don't have a method. They realize that things aren't working, but they don't know why. So that's it's it's always it interesting when we're able to to start a process and gradually see people's eyes open up and go, okay, I understand things better. Part of it is explaining some of the psychology. I take the questions. One of the questions is, you know, why do my Clients buy in ways that I don't understand and sometimes that don't seem rational to them. So we talk about the model of rationality in psychology. I use also a metaphor from that I borrowed from positive psychology about how the unconsciousness determines how we think, how we feel. It happened with one of my clients that his client was not happy with performance. And so he explained why the performance was the way it was and was surprised at the client still felt upset. But with this model, he was able to understand that, of course, when you when you're dealing with someone who is angry, and you're not addressing the anger, but you're pretending it isn't there. And especially you're saying it's not justified to be angry. The person will just disagree with you and think you're an idiot. Whereas if you address it, especially if you address it absolutely heads on, then you're able to diffuse the anger.
0: It's really important, and I'm so pleased that you raised this. If you do not confront the elephant in the room, then chances are it will come to crush you later. Um, and uh, there, there, um, I think it was Stephen Covey said it in one of his books, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Mm-hmm. If you try to convince people, then chances are you're going to be pushing rope uphill. It's, it's just not going to work. People need to feel felt. They need to be heard. They need to feel understood. And that's a salesperson's number one job. If you cannot listen well, and I, I have never listened my way out of a sale. I've talked my way out of plenty. I've probably interrogated people out of them because I've been too harsh or too rapid fire with my questions. But I've never listened my way out of a sale. And it's your job To pay close attention, you you, by listening, people feel validated, and by letting them vent and have their say, and appreciate and acknowledge that they are angry, and you meet them where they are, then you have a chance to actually sell through and pass that. If you don't, and you just simply come with your assumptions and you justify and you defend, that's never going to work. All that'll do will create simmering resentment.
1: So yes, that's very true. I actually, when it comes to this, I, I combine ideas from Jonathan Haidt, the psychologist, uh, and his yeah. book, uh, A Book on Positive Psychology. I, the, the name slips me, of course, as we're, as we're live. But yeah, The Happiness Hypothesis. So I combine that with Chris Voss. So Jonathan Haidt talks about the subconscious mind being like an elephant and the conscious mind being like a rider. And the rider is arrogant and believes he guides the elephant and reads the elephant. And so I, you know, my, my bankers often look at me with a surprised look when I talk about this. But I say, okay, let's imagine it's true. How is your client's elephant feeling? Say they're angry, okay. And when you tell them they shouldn't be angry, do you think it makes them more angry or less angry? So more angry. So why are you doing it? What is your goal? If you know the outcome is to make an angry elephant even more angry, at least explain to me why you're surprised that the elephant is getting more angry, whilst this is the explanation that you're, the outcome that you expect. Of course, as transaction analysis explains, why people do that being a child. And then with Chris Voss, who's a former FBI negotiator, his method is tactical empathy. So instead of trying to avoid the anger, exaggerate it. You must be furious. You must be so disappointed with what we've done. I can imagine this is the end of of our relationship. And of course, the client backs down and goes, well, it's not that bad. Really? If I were you, I would do X. And uh, it it works beautifully. It's wonderful. It's a lot of fun to do. It works beautifully.
0: Absolutely. We we, we teach the same thing. It's called pendulum theory. And the rule is you always stay behind the prospect on the pendulum. So you're always more negative. And it really does work. I mean, typically, you can go from no to yes. And from hostility to a yes within three to eight questions. And it's really not that difficult to do. But it does take practice. And you need to be fully committed to it because yep. if you're a bit half-baked about it then they will pick up on that exactly. and what you're doing is you're having them convince themselves because by going more negative than them newton's third law of motion applies for every mm-hmm. reaction there is an opposite reaction yeah. so if i try and justify and defend. I'm going to find resistance, so they'll push against me. If, on the other hand, I keep falling back, falling back, falling back, they will push towards me. And the beauty of that is that they do all the heavy lifting. I think Karl von Clausewitz got it pretty right when he was recruiting Prussian officers. He would always recruit them for laziness and high intelligence, yes, minimum bad. loss of life and minimum effort. Yeah. What are the three questions people should ask you, but they don't?
1: One of them is to what extent we should be working with a team culture. They usually view it as being an individual issue. So one bank isn't working out or multiple bankers aren't working out. And they can be really reluctant to view their functioning as a system. So... It depends with the people. Usually I try to bring it up, but some people are very reluctant. So I have to see how I, how I do it. But saying it's, it's a system. The system is working for you somehow. Are you really willing to change the system? Or is it more comfortable for you to have bankers who underperform? Because that's part of a life narrative that you have, where your failures are because of other people. And therefore, you can blame them. So if we were able to work more on the team culture, we'd get better results. Some people are open to it, and others are, are very reluctant. So they don't want to change, but expect other people to change. And then when other people change, they have to change results, and they can be reluctant to doing that.
0: So what, why is that, though? Because, it, it, I mean, wherever you look, culture will determine how people act and behave. And if there's a repeated pattern, it's often a very clear clue that there is something amiss with the culture. Why is it that they're so reluctant to admit that?
1: My take on it is that it would mean taking some responsibility and people tend to think in binary. You know, whose fault is it? Is it this person's fault or that person's fault? And I usually recommend that they, they think in a more granular fashion, either between zero and 10 or one percentages, and thinking, you know, is, is the person's problem really 0% your fault? I means you have zero percent responsibility in it. You hide the person, you interact with the person. How do you set the goals? That's actually another question that should be that we should be talking about more. I see very often goals being set top down and being and this is part of the interview process, is saying, We won't hire you unless you promise you can bring in hundred million. And then the person says, Okay, I promise, because otherwise I've just disqualified myself. And then they walk away and go, Well, I don't know how I'm gonna do that, but sure, I mean it's part of the game. The way they set goals has an impact and they like setting goals from top down as opposed to asking people to come with bottom up goals. So when I work with my clients, with the bankers, we'll go line by line, do projections and say, based on your projections, this is what you think it can achieve, which ironically is often higher than what's requested from you. But because <laughs> they do it from a from a bottom up way, they actually feel conf- confident they can do it was when it's top down, it doesn't tell people how to achieve it, how to manage it. People
0: work a lot harder for their reasons than your reasons. So if you can tie their personal motivation, their personal drivers, what they're trying to achieve, what they're hoping to achieve, the security that they're looking to bring for themselves and their family, the experiences that they want to provide, the savings that they want to create for themselves, then it's much easier to find that motivation. And in planning with the, the individual... It's really important that you understand what they want from this role. You know, one of my favorite questions is, well, why are you in sales? Mm. And they sort of struggle, and they, then they admit that they stumbled into it. And But really, who are you doing it for? If you can't express that, then it makes it very difficult to maintain your motivation to come in and take the beatings that we do in sales. Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. You know, most of what we do is about rejection. And the, the problem is that if you spend so much time constantly feeling like you are being rejected rather than you're doing this and you're going through this process because there's some higher purpose, then it's very easy to feel demoralized. And then that's a vicious spiral that just goes down and down and down. And dragging people out of that is, it's possible. But why would you ever let them get to that point? You know, as a manager, you should have been able to identify this stuff up front. And you know, working with them to agree those goals through the recruitment process, have them come with a plan. Help them put this plan together and work out where the gaps are. Don't punish them for it. Make it easier for them to work out how they're going to resolve this problem for themselves. But very few managers do that. And it keeps coming back to that point that managers are the most undertrained people. And being a manager is a totally different skill set to being a, a sales producer. With a manager, you actually have to care about the performance of other people. With being a top producer, you have to care about your own performance. So I, I see these mistakes being perpetrated. But very often, it's because of a toxic leadership culture, which you know, you know, cracks the whip all the time and is asking for these ludicrous numbers. And so what we often see is overassignment of quota. Do you see that happening in private banking? Because certainly in most of the uh, environments I operate in, I see that happening a lot. Where the, you know, the target's a billion. And if you add up all the salespeople's quotas, it's one and a half billion. So the CFO is a happy bunny because he gets his number. And mm-hmm. The CEO is happy because she gets her number. And the salespeople are run ragged. And most of them are missing their quota and fearing for their jobs.
1: It's a mixed bag when it comes to, to, to banking, because the high performers will typically be left alone, or they'll be making whatever projections they make, which they might or might, might not follow. The other ones will be the ones who are below break-even will be pushed to increase until break-even, but it's um, it's not very structured in the way I've in the way I've seen it. In asset management, I saw it being a bit different, where a quota will be pulled out of or um, a goal will be pulled out of a hat, and people will be told either you make it or you or you leave. Um, and forgetting that it really is up to each individual based on their clients existing clients to see what's feasible and how many new clients they think they can get and have some idea of whom and why. But I don't see that much interest from the individual from the individual managers to sit down, understand how the person does it. It's a lot of work. And there's a lot of de- deception, self-deception. So the banker who really believes that maybe they can get this, this huge client over. But what I see is, it's, you know, it's part of the cognitive biases we have somebody will believe that a 10% chance of landing a 50 million client is equivalent to having 5 million clients. Let's say 25 million clients with a 50% chance of landing them. It's, um, we're not very good at computing it. So that's one reason why I, I push people to go for the high probability clients. They're sure they're going to land instead of the low probability, high net worth ones because it's low probability. And then once they have enough assets, they can go for the big ones if they want, but they shouldn't be relying on that.
0: Again, what we often see with sort of these alpha male macho cultures is that you should be going out and hunting the elephants. Whereas, in fact, if you're going for the deer and you know, the, a few rabbits along the way, that can sustain you very nicely. And mm-hmm. you, you, know, you, you look for the occasional elephant, but those are the icing on the cake. They're not your bread and butter, if I can pile as many uh, metaphors <laughs> and cliches all into one. You need to focus on good, solid, reliable business and stop trying to be the hero. I fell into this trap when I was in recruitment. I remember pursuing a £3.2 million recruitment deal for nearly seven months, and I left everything else to go by the wayside. And net result of that was that that didn't come in. And so I was way behind on quota. And you know, I ended up leaving that role. Luckily, I managed to get myself headhunted um, <laughs> before I got pushed. But again, you know, that, that's another classic uh, sales, uh, salesperson's habit, which is if you're not performing, then blag your way into your next job before you get pushed. Oh, yes. And it's your fault. If, you ha- if you're going after these elephants and you're not prospecting for good, solid, regular uh, bread and butter business then shame on you. And more importantly, shame on the manager for allowing you to do that. It seems crazy. So let's build on that. If you are taking a blank sheet of paper and you are designing the ideal manager, what would they look like? Let's start with their habits. What would they do every day, every week, every month, every quarter without fail?
1: So with their with their team or the team they manage, yeah. they would have, they'd be having regular meetings with the bankers to sit down and go through the list of clients, determining priorities.
0: Individually like or in a group?
1: They'd be doing it individually. They could do it in a group, actually. But uh, I think individually is easier because if there's any weakness, people can be reluctant to show the weakness in front of their colleagues. And there's more likelihood that they will be deceptive if other people are listening because of the, uh, the, the comparison. So, it's
0: a crashing waste of everyone else's time listening to people live from fiction.
1: Yes, largely. Whereas getting feedback and updates together could be interesting so they can brainstorm about situations where somebody goes, I'm stuck with this client. This is what happened at the meeting. I don't know what the next step is. And there the brainstorming it could be really interesting. Yeah, Actually, I do this when I do, when I do group coaching. It's very interesting to do that. So they'd sit down, they'd go line by line. They'd have the person explain more about the psychology of the client. So they get a feeling of who the client really is, the motivations. Yeah. And based on that, they'd also challenge it, saying you come up with your top three or top five priority list, Explain to me why these and why not the other ones. So basically challenge every single assumption, then have some kind of plan over the next weeks or months about what do you think the touch points are? What are you expecting from the touch point? How will we know that the meeting is a success? Uh, Using, I got this from Yes Minister, so just showing that my 1980s BBC (laughs) TV watching was, was very, very effective and a good investment. They'll say, what are the success and failure criteria? For anything, how will we know it's a success? How will, know, how will we know it's a failure? So how can we assess it? And that helps us avoid somebody walking out of a meeting saying, I think it was a good meeting because the person liked me. Nice. Um, unless they're going to go <laughs> on holiday together. Yeah, unless they're going to go on holiday together, we don't, that's not what's relevant. Yeah, not, then they'd be challenging. Like you say, a lot of this is a matter of practice. So anytime they'd be identifying old mindset problems coming up, maybe putting a, putting the finger on it. And I'd just say having milestones over, over the, the, the weeks and months, understanding why they're hitting them or not hitting them, adjusting the projections and just keep it going as an ongoing process. The downside, of course, is that it's unbelievably time-consuming to do this. Oh, and then also going to meet the clients where they can actually add value and deciding when that is. And understanding also the difference in personality type. So, for example, one of my clients is, or was, I should say, was not very assertive. I got him to estimate. He said between zero and 10, I'm probably at two. And I asked, you know, how, how would you like to be ideally? He says, probably five. Because my clients like me because I'm not assertive. I'm not that assertive. The other bankers are very assertive and they always complain about how pushy they are. And then he said, my issue is that my manager of assertiveness is probably at nine out of 10. And he believes that if I act as a nine out of 10, I'll get better results. He said, But I'm not going to get better results. He's going to destroy my book. I'm going to lose all my existing clients. I'm going to be fake. That's not who I want to be. I have a mission working with my clients, and being too pushy goes against all of my values and my ethics. And it's going to destroy my book.
0: Couldn't agree more. I think a couple of other things that I'd advise managers to do is. On a weekly basis, bookend the week with a weekly Monday morning check-in and a Friday afternoon check-out, and ask your team what are your top three goals for the week. Mm-hmm. And don't make you know make three appointments per day. Make it something like learn how to be more assertive, improve my questioning, improve my listening, and. Then find out why they picked that particular uh, objective. And how do you measure that goal? What are the consequences of not achieving it? And it's meant to be, it's not meant to be a gotcha exercise. So make sure you ask how you can help. And at the end of the week, check out the performance against the goal. What were the specific hits and misses? What drove those hits and misses? What should we start, stop, continue, do more of, do less of? And again, make sure you ask how you can help. I think a regular daily team stitch meeting is a good idea as well. Mm -hmm. So help them focus on the behavior. What's today's most important call? What's the decision we're hoping to get at the end of the call? Can you share the upfront contract, the agreement that you have in place for that call? Mm -hmm. And can you show me your pre-call plan? Because if you do this on a regular basis, then they know that they have to have an agreement before they go in. There has to be a clear intended outcome. Uh, They have to have a plan. Because salespeople who plan generally outperform people who wing it. Make sure that you're going on ride-alongs on a regular basis. And agree up front what the contract is between you and the salesperson and what your respective roles are.
1: What I'm hearing you saying is reward behaviors instead of outcomes.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And don't punish an unintended outcome. Analyze why it happened and make sure that you're learning from it and make sure that you're getting your salespeople into the right habits Mm -hmm. because you're a slave to your habits. If you don't have good habits, then... You have to question why you keep doing them. And very often, policies and procedures become habit because you Mm -hmm. don't review them. You haven't looked at your policies for 10 years. And then all of a sudden, you suddenly realize, well, hang on a second. Our book of business is starting to decline or has been on a decline for years. Well, what is it we're encouraging our people not to do? What is it we're encouraging them to do? And the most important thing of all is coaching. I think... Managers who do not have a cadence of coaching and prepare for their coaching sessions with a pre-coached plan and a reminder that it's not training. Mm -hmm. You can train events, but you have to coach patterns. You coach with your ears, not your mouth. You need to understand that often your salespeople will come with convenient truths. It's about our pricing. What you have to do is listen for and pay attention to the absolute truth.
1: Um, and, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, that listen, that's very true, and I think it's especially true in an industry like uh, private banking in Switzerland specifically, where there's been so many changes in the past ten years. Uh, there's no more banking secrecy, so a lot of clients have been lost or sent away, and there's a behaviour that worked before when clients would walk in through the door. It used to be a symptom based behaviour. People wanted discretion in banking; they'd come to Switzerland, and now Switzerland is competing against many other financial centres. And unlearning behaviours that have worked for generations is unbelievably painful, and also admit it means admitting that things have changed. So that's that's very counterintuitive, but that's a big mindset change that the successful banks are doing, and successful bankers are doing. It's a big change. It's
0: huge. And um, okay, look,
1: Fred, we, we've come to the, uh, the top of the hour.
0: Tell me something. What are you listening to, watching, reading? that you think has significant influence on you and other people should pay heed to?
1: Sure. So with a lot of what I'm reading, it goes into, into psychology and I encourage my, my clients to do that. It's And psychology sounds scary, but it's not that difficult to understand. Paul Ekman is wonderful, understanding emotions, understanding lies and how we lie to ourselves. He's a great one. Alfred Adler is very helpful also in terms of life lies and how we... It explains a lot about how situations that we complain about actually really work out for us. We just don't want to see it. And there are two wonderful books, The Courage to Be Disliked and The Courage to Be Happy, that summarize Adler very well. Eric Byrne is is great also, as is uh, Daniel Kahneman about cognitive biases. Jung, of course, is not easy to, to read, but we can find videos talking about his ideas that are, that are very insightful. Ray Dalio is also very interesting. Um, Absolutely as a business owner who used a lot of these these truthful ideas and create a whole culture out of it and a healthy culture. In terms of outside of sales and psychology, I'm strangely influenced by Dieter Rams, who was the chief designer of uh, Brown and who influenced Johnny Ive. And his 10 rules of good design helped me review massively slideshows I was making when I was working in marketing and thinking, what is the point of this slideshow? Like, how am I helping the salesperson make a sale? Because making a pretty slideshow is not helping anyone make a sale. The logo, if the logo is helping someone make a sale, then we've got something really weird when it comes to financial products and financial services. And if someone di- doesn't buy because of the font, then probably there's another problem. So we can we can nitpick about details, but those <laughs> are just excuses. You know, it's like if... Uh, if someone wants a divorce because you didn't put the, the, the top bag on the toothpaste, probably there was another problem. But it's a convenient excuse. <laughs>
0: Have you ever been blindsided by a client?
1: Yeah, it happens. It's, it's interesting. It happened recently with someone who... So when I work with clients, I give them a toolkit and we, we practice a bit. But of course, I don't know their clients. I wish I'd be there with them. Be much e- easier, but that can be complicated. So one person wanted to apply literally everything with one of her clients who was Russian. And the Russian mindset is very different. With the Russian mindset, as I learned subsequently, you need to spend time getting to know people before you talk about business. And so she was pushing for a no too quickly. And the person just shrugged and said, well, we don't have a relationship. So of course, we don't know if there would have been any business coming out of it. And some business did come out of some of the clients who, because she pushed for a no, said, you know, just wait, actually, we really need you. So um, here I can't, I can't assess to what extent it really helped her or was it a disservice. But uh, adapting for culture is very important. And adapting for the individual clients is important. So something, something I'll, I'll, I'll use that is helpful, I don't know how it should be dosed for each individual client. So uh, now, now I'm very conscious about that, reminding people, I don't know your clients. You read them, read the facial expressions and body language. I can't do it if, if I'm not there.
0: Excellent. And what are you struggling with?
1: One of the, the, the big issues is managing the managers. I really get it. I really get that when you're a when you're CEO, when you're um, a head of a desk, that you want things to be a certain way. But I'm finding that and sometimes having to to work with bankers, help them increase their assets, be somewhat deceitful with their own managers to avoid the manager coming in and sabotaging all of the good uh, efforts, sometimes lying to the manager, saying that they can, and usually I don't condone lying, but saying that they can they can hit the targets, knowing that they're going to fall short of a few percent, but knowing that they won't get fired because they still did well. So they have to make a promise they're not going to keep and still focus on doing the work they can be doing which is, uh, which is it's, it, it's a shame. It'd be much easier just to have an open conversation or have the manager support them openly. That's when the manager's reluctant to getting coached and the manager's reluctant to changing their own ways. So that's, that's the way things are.
0: Interesting. And if you had a golden ticket and you could whisper in the idiot Fred's ear, age 23, what advice would you give him?
1: I think the, the, the biggest advice would be um, trust yourself more. If something looks moronic, maybe it is. It doesn't mean call it out and tell everyone just how stupid it is because that doesn't go down too well. But learn that people are not necessarily telling the truth, that sometimes they believe the lies, that sometimes they have really bad habits. So basically it's learn, learn more about psychology and why people why people lie to themselves and why those systems are, are the way they are. But don't delegate responsibility for deciding what makes sense, what doesn't to other people because most of the time they don't know. They don't know better. They're doing their best. So yeah, be trust yourself more. Be more critical and trust yourself more and sometimes learn to shut your mouth a bit more.
0: Good advice. (laughs) Excellent. So Fred, how can people get hold of you?
1: They can contact me on LinkedIn. They can go to my website, which is frederickkermish.com. Or write to me, uh, either Frederick at Frederick Kermish or info at Frederick Kermish. Frederick is C-K and Kermish, S-C-H at the end. So yeah, Frederick, Kermish, LinkedIn, email. Very happy to hear from people if they've got questions.
0: Wonderful. Fred, thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been very insightful.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Time flew by. It was, uh, really enjoyed this.
0: Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor Podcast once again. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then email me at marcuscalki at me.com or m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be an interesting guest who has something to say about psychology, about marketing, about management, about sales, then please drop me a line and connect us. In the meantime, stay safe. Happy selling. Bye-bye.